have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is one of the most important passages in in the Bible because it deals with the vital issues of the Christian life and raises the questions that are important, like how does one gain the approval of a holy God? And how can I be acceptable to God? And how can I know that when I come to the end of my life that I will be accepted by God into His heaven? The world declares that the way you do this is by doing the best you can, by keeping the law, living by the Ten Commandments, following the Golden Rule, bringing your life in line with the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. It's what Paul calls living under law. And and living under under law in general means any philosophy of religion that seeks to find the approval of God by what itself can do. And Paul says that if you live under law, seek to find the approval of God by what you yourself can do, then you are shut up to sin. You live under a curse and you are shut up to sin. That's true because the law is a manifestation of the character of God. All the Ten Commandments are just God in written form, a manifestation of what God is like. So the law reveals Him as holy and righteous, and if I'm going to gain the approval of God, I must be absolutely holy and absolutely righteous. I can't be that. I'm shut up to sin because of the law a manifestation of God's character. But I'm also shut out of salvation because the law is a measure of my character. And I've fallen far short. I've broken the law. And James says that if you offend the law in one point, you're guilty of offending the law in every point. So it is the curse of the law that demands salvation. And that salvation is provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is demanded by the curse of the law and salvation is provided by the curse of the tree. So there are two cursings. There is a cursing that leads to death and that's the law. And there is a cursing that leads to life and that's the tree. For God has this unusual ability to bring blessing out of cursing. The story of Joseph is an example of that. Sold by his brothers down to to Egypt, there thrown in Potiphar's jail and forgotten. Under the curse of his own betrayal and, and of his own misfortune, but God has the ability to bring blessing out of cursing, not just for Joseph, but for his family and for the entire nation. And God has this unusual ability to bring life flowing out of death. And so even though we live under the law and are cursed by the law, God has the ability to bring out of that cursing life. And He does that by the curse of the tree. Now, 
The Apostle Paul says two things about this salvation that's provided. First of all, he says that this salvation is made available through the Lord Jesus. Now we've already established that this Bible is a book about Jesus. Jesus said, you read Moses, you'll find me there. You read the law, you find me. You read the psalmist, you find me. You read the prophet, you find me. For everything that God does for man, He does through Jesus Christ. You need to remember that. For Jesus is the channel through which God meets man in blessing. And the apex, the greatest example of that is the cross of Jesus. For there man's ultimate need was met by God's ultimate blessing. The history of this, of this country reveals that a, that a transcontinental railway was being built to connect the East Coast with the West Coast. And they started on the East Coast to build this railway to connect the Atlantic with the Pacific, the East with the West. And they ran out of, they, they ran out of funds out in the Southwest somewhere. And there was this period of time which they were gaining, you know, getting more funds together. And they finally did. And they started from west to east. And they were going to meet on the borders of Colorado and New Mexico. Some of you have been to that monument there. There's one now there. And when they, almost, when they, when they got where, almost to the place where they were going to meet, these two, uh, this railway, railway line, they ordered a laurel uh, tie and two silver spikes one to be driven by the governor of Colorado and the other by the governor of New Mexico, where these two lines met. And when that last uh, tie was laid and that spike was driven, the east was joined with the west. Now somewhere, man's ultimate need and God's ultimate blessing met. That somewhere was the cross and four spikes were driven into the body of Jesus, and he was hung, said Miller. When Jesus was crucified, history was literally nailed together, and the cross was a wedge that was driven in time, and God and man met there. God met man's need in the cross. Now the Apostle Paul is very careful to indicate two things about the cross that met man's need. First of all, he talks about the death of the cross. And he said, He redeemed us from the curse of the law, for it is written, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Now where is that written? Well, he's quoting from Deuteronomy, but actually the Jew, Jews didn't crucify. To execute somebody, they, they stoned them to death. Uh, crucifixion was a Roman execution. But when the Jews uh, would execute somebody, they would take his body and they'd hang it on a tree so that everybody would know that this person died outside the law and died outside of excess, uh, acceptability. And they would pass by his body hanging on the tree and they would curse him so that Jesus died outside the law. Now he lived within the law, but he died outside the law. Jesus said, now you can't 
live up to the, you can't measure up to the law, but I can, and he did. The one who tried him said, I find no fault in this man. The one who betrayed him said, I betrayed innocent blood. The one who nailed him on the cross said, surely this was the Son of God. So that when Jesus died there, he must have been dying for somebody else's sin, for he had none. When I counsel with little kids, I, uh, I talk to them about, you know, about being saved and I, we talk about the cross and so I'm going to ask them this question. I'll say, now, Jesus died on the cross. Something terrible must have been done. Must have been a terrible thing for Jesus to die on the cross. Now tell me, did He die on the cross because He did something bad? Or did He die on the cross because somebody else did something bad? They always have the right answer. Every time they will answer, because somebody else did something bad. They're right. For he was the lamb without spot or blemish. And when these Jews would bring a sacrifice on the day of atonement, this lamb, the priest would shut it up for three days. And for three days he would inspect it to see if it was um, worthy of sacrifice, see if it was acceptable. And for three long years, Jesus lived his life under the scrutinizing eye of his Holy Father. And one day he said, that sacrifice is acceptable. And this lamb, without spot or blemish, was hung on a tree for us. And what it means is that Jesus took all our sin upon himself and stood before God with all our sin on him that we through faith might stand before God with none of our sin upon us. It means that the one who was righteous was made unrighteous in order that those of us unrighteous might be made righteous. It means that God made him everything that he must judge in order that we through faith in Him might be made everything that God cannot judge. So He became accursed, was made a curse for us through His death. But the Apostle Paul wants us to know that there was more about the cross than just His death. He, he talks about His disgrace, His disgrace. Now it's difficult for us to, you know, to bring ourselves to say that Jesus was accursed. But whenever somebody died outside the law, he was a disgrace. He, he was shamed. It was a disgrace to do that. D doesn't it say somewhere that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame? For there's more to what Jesus struggled with in the Garden of Gethsemane than the fact that He was going to soon die this ultimate death. What He wrestled with in the Garden of Gethsemane was the disgrace of it. And listen to me. The disgrace of the cross was worse than the death of the cross. For here was this man who had never known sin. He had never tasted it. He had never experienced it. He had never sinned once. 
And here was this man who had never known one moment of unbroken fellowship with his father. And all of a sudden, God is going to lay crushingly upon him our sin. And he became sin and hung out there on that cross in disgrace. And that's what he, that's what he despised. And I remember 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. And that verse says that no man speaking by the Spirit of God can call Jesus accursed. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about these preachers after the resurrection, these evangelicals, and they'd go out in the country and they'd preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and they would declare Jesus as Messiah and they would say Messiah has come and Messiah was crucified and people were, they, they, that was abhorrent to them. And people out in the audience would stand and they would tear their clothes in agony and they'd throw dust in the air in derision and they would say, no, Jesus is a criminal. Jesus is a disgrace. Now this is how we were redeemed from the curse. He became a curse for us, dying the death and experiencing the disgrace. Salvation made available through the person of Jesus. Now you might ask the question then, does that mean that everybody's saved because He died for us? doesn't mean that. As a matter of fact, there is a phrase in verse 14 that explodes the myth of universalism forever. And it's the, it's the phrase, in Christ. So that this salvation that is demanded by the curse of the law is made actual through the person of Jesus Christ in our lives. Made available through Jesus, made actual through our faith in Him. And in verses 23 through 29, I think there are six statements that describe better than any other place in all of Scripture what it means to be in Christ and how we got there. Now, if you want to take some time, a New Testament or a commentary, and you just want to read a passage of Scripture that in a nutshell describes what it means to be in Christ and how you get in Christ, you take verses 23 through 29 of Galatians 3. And there are six statements that describe it. First of all, who takes a person to a teacher, uh, really a disciplinarian, kind of a governess, pictured in, these, in this pottery that, is, that was uncovered from that culture in that time as a person with a stick in his hand. So he's saying that the law was the pedagogos, was the boy leader that drives us to Christ. Now watch this carefully. The law was never given whereby one could be saved. The law was given to convince a man that he needed to be saved. And that law itself drove us to the Savior. And with a stick in its hand, drives us to the place where we recognize that Jesus Christ is the answer to the need. So that we are led to Christ by the law. The second phrase is found in verse 26. It's the phrase, faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. 
Now you've heard that term, you've heard that all your life. You've got to have faith in Christ to be saved. What does that mean? Now listen to me carefully. It means to turn myself over to Jesus. It means to commit myself to trust Him and Him alone. It does not mean to take a chance on God. Now let me see if I can get this scenario with you. Suppose you came in this morning and at the back door of the auditorium the, the uh, usher said, come on in and be seated. There are seats over on the side and if you want to take a chance on those pews in the middle, you can sit in the middle. They, they may or may not hold you up you, you, if you want to take a chance on them. Now, if you chose to sit in the middle, you probably wouldn't put all your weight down on because nobody's going to take a chance on pews that may or may not hold you up if there are others around that will. Now watch carefully. Faith in Jesus Christ is not taking a chance on God. It is committing myself to rest on Him all my weight. It is committing myself to trust Jesus Christ and Him alone to save me. There's a third phrase. In fact, there are two of them and they're synonymous and they're found in verse 27. He says that you're baptized into Christ. Now that does not mean water baptism. I'm sorry about that, but it just doesn't support baptismal regeneration. It doesn't mean water baptism. Baptism, bab baptized, is a transliteration of the word to immerse into. It means to put myself into union with Christ. And a person who is in Christ is a person who has voluntarily immersed himself into union with Christ. And he says, and at the same time, you clothe yourself with Christ. And that means that you take Jesus Christ as the new environment for your life. That's what Paul means when he says, for me to live is Christ. I take Jesus Christ as my new environment. I was preaching a revival, this revival in Hale Center, and I was getting pretty, you know, I was kind of getting, the guy told me, he called it motivated. He said, boy, you got motivated. I was kind of getting into it, and I was spitting and sweating. And, and, and I made a statement that, that just kind of slipped out. I don't know whether, I think, the, you know, the, the Lord said it, but I remember that when I said it, this singer gasped, you know, in shock. I thought, whoa, you know, what'd I say? And, and, and what I said was this, and I've thought about it a lot since, and I think it's right, and I think it was a, a statement made of the Holy Spirit. That being in Christ or becoming a Christian is more than just inviting Jesus into your heart. Now, what we say sometimes really is not really what we mean. But a lot of times we say that all you've got to do to be a Christian is to ask Jesus into your heart. I believe that accepting Jesus Christ is more than that. I believe that accepting Jesus Christ is accepting Jesus and His way as my new environment. Now, how did people accept 
Jesus Christ today when they can't see Him. You can't see Jesus. Now Jesus is present. He said, when I, I'm going back to the Father so I can send the other Jesus, He's more in the world today than He was then. How do you accept Jesus today that you cannot see? Listen to me. You accept Jesus today that you cannot see the same way they accepted the Jesus they could see. And so he walked along and he said, this is the way I am. This is what I am. This is what I teach. I want you to accept me as, as your master, your Lord, and follow me. Frank Pollard tells about one of his friends who, who uh, picked up a hitchhiker. He said the hitchhiker had the filthiest mouth. Just Every word was a profane word as they rode along. And finally... The guy got a word in edgewise. He thought, I better witness to this guy. And so he started to witness. The guy said, hey, oh, I'm Christian. He said, you, you're a Christian? He said, well, you could have surprised me. He said, yeah. He said, when I was a kid, I asked Jesus into my heart. And, and Frank said, one of his friends said, do you know what it means to ask Jesus into your heart? You know what it means to accept Jesus Christ? It means I accept Him and everything He is and stands for. I'm clothed with Christ, which means that I accept His life as my environment. Now, a child may not know exactly all that means, but you and I do as adults. There is a fourth statement. It's found in verse 28. It's the phrase one in Christ. We are one in Christ. He said there are no Jews or Greeks. There are no, there, there, there's no male, no female. Now, now they are. They're Jews and they're Greeks. They're male and they're female. We know that. So what is he talking about? He's talking about this. He's saying that to the person who is in Christ, all of the old distinctions are gone. Watch. And we no longer value one another on the basis of race or color or status or sex. That a person in Christ no longer values someone else on the basis of the color of their skin are their sex or their status. And so Paul in that marvelous fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians talks about what it means to be a new species of being in Christ. And he says, now therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. He meant that all of these distinctions that are present are no more. One last phrase. And this is the hard one. He says in verse 29 that we belong to Christ. We belong to Him. You are not your own. We belong to Christ. Now there are three incontrovertible truths I want to share with you this morning. Three truths without controversy. One, there are two powers that seek to own you or control you. Two, you're under the control of one of those two powers. Number three, you cannot be under the control of those two powers, both those powers at the same time. Now this is what that means. 
It means that you either belong to God and He controls your life or you belong to the devil and He controls it. One of the two. As plain as that. You either belong to God and He controls your life or you belong to the devil and He controls it. Now when a person becomes a Christian, this is what happens. He gives the control of his life, lock, stock, and barrel to God. And God becomes the owner of that life. Listen, you are not your own. And if you're a Christian this morning, it's because you have decided that you would let God be the owner of your life. And if He is the owner of your life, He is also the operator of it. You've seen those little signs at the top of businesses, owner slash operator. And I believe this with a deep conviction that God will not take possession of your life unless He can have control of it. Imagine this scenario. Suppose somebody's got a business for sale that you want and you've got the financing to make that purchase by that business. And you go to that man and you make an agreement of, of, of sale and you get a contract. You're going to buy with so much money that business and you get ready to sign the contract. And he says, one stipulation. I'm going to sell you this business for X amount of dollars, one stipulation. I want to control the business. I want to make all the purchases, make all the sales. I want to make all the deposits. I want to call all the shots. Now, we're done, but we're not stupid. And we're not going, we're not going to buy that. If you're going to buy the business, you say, if I'm going to buy the business, I'm going to run the business. I'm going to, oper I'm going to control the business. Now, wait a minute. Everybody wants God to take possession of his life, to take ownership. Nobody wants to go to hell. But at the same time, many of us are offering our lives up to God for him to own. We're saying, but I want to operate it and control it. And he won't buy that. Listen to me carefully. If you give your life to Jesus Christ, lock, stock, and barrel, it means you take your hands off its operation. And so the Pharisees said to Jesus, We're the sons of Abraham. And Jesus said, No, you're not the sons of Abraham. If you were the sons of Abraham, you would do what your father tells you to do. And what he meant by that was this that you expose to the world who really owns you by who you obey. Now that's the bad news. The good news is this, that if he becomes the owner and the operator of your life, and that's what Paul says here in this passage, then he accepts full responsibility for you. I love that thought. 
I turned my life over to Jesus Christ when I was 18 years old, best I could. And I believe that He has full responsibility if I go to hell. He has the full responsibility for my life. And I think it means that when you yield your life to Him and He accepts responsibility for it, He's going to take care of every need you have. You can count on it. He's the one responsible. Andrew Murray said, God is willing to accept full responsibility for the life that is totally yielded to Him. That's the good news. Now every person who lives under the law is under the curse. That means you're separated from God in this life, alienated from God in this life, and separated from God in the life to come. But by His death and the disgrace of it, He made salvation possible for you. And that salvation is made actual through the person of Jesus Christ. The question is, have you ever, have you ever committed yourself to trust in Him? And have you ever turned your life to Him? Let's pray together. Father, for this moment of invitation, we pray for Your Spirit to speak to our heart. And for those of us who have lived a lie and who have been, in, who've been guilty of pretense, reveal, convict, and help us to see that only in Jesus Christ is man saved. And I pray for those of us today in this congregation of, of heroes who are lost without Christ, driven by the curse of the law to Him, I pray they'll make Him their new environment, put their life in Him, accept Him as Lord and Savior, the owner and the operator of their life. I pray this. In Jesus' name. Now look here. There are three invitations. I'm going to ask you in a moment to get up out of your seat and come if you're not a Christian and you're not sure that you're a Christian. And you're wondering how I can be acceptable to God. Get up out of your seat and come this morning committing yourself to trust in Jesus Christ and claim for you His finished work. For salvation accomplished not by your deeds, but by His death. Come this morning claiming Him as your Savior and your Lord. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat in a moment and come and join this church. If you need to place your life here, you're a member of this community, you live in this community, you want to be a member of this fellowship, to come today and say, I want to join this church. College students, people who have come to Durant, come today. Or maybe as a Christian, you just need to come and rededicate your life, yourself to Christ. You've sinned publicly. You need to repent publicly. And before others, you need to come publicly before others, confess that sin and repent of it. 
So as we sing the invitation, we invite you to come. While we stand and sing, you come.